0: We'll be Hello and welcome to Behind the News. My name is Doug Henwood. Just one segment today, a long interview with Troy Batese and Drew Pendergrass, authors of Half-Earth Socialism, a plan to save the future from extinction, climate change, and pandemics, published earlier this year by Verso. In August, I had the geographer Matt Huber on the show. He was very critical of degrowth economics as an approach to climate change. Among his targets was this book, Huber's critique attracted some hostile emails and tweets from listeners, as well as from one of the authors, Troy Viteze, who denounced Huber, me, and New Left Review, which published Huber's critique on their blog as sausage socialists. I plead guilty. I like both sausage and socialism. Like Huber, I'm what de Grossarts call disparagingly an eco-modernist, meaning I think it's possible to reconcile a comfortable, technologically advanced life with avoiding climate catastrophe. Many hardcore greens dismiss this approach as a technical fix, as if they were some sort of underhanded trick. Vitasian Pendergrass have a vision very different from eco-modernism. They think we should turn over half the planet to nature, a project known as rewilding, which would mean moving humans off about 40% of currently inhabited land. That the rich countries need to cut their energy use radically, fossil fuels must be kept in the ground, and nuclear power is unthinkable, and that we all have to become vegans. They imagine that this future society would be run by planning, not markets, and on a planetary scale. There are some things I admire about the book. The climate crisis is dire, and weak-ass approaches won't solve the problem. This is certainly not one of those, even if it's not mine. It's also nice to see some utopian thinking, and it's even nicer to see socialists with ambitious notions of planning. But I have lots of problems with the model, starting with its utopianism. Utopias are a nice way of organizing our dreams and enticing people into a political project, but a flaw in utopian thinking is that it often shows not even the vaguest plan for getting there from here. Half-Earth socialism is a very serious case of that problem. In one chapter of the book, they spin out a fantasy of someone waking up in 2047 after the Half-Earth revolution has triumphed. The story of how we got there, and I use we loosely given my age, is rather phantasmic. There was a hurricane in the late 2020s that savaged the U.S. East Coast. As a desperation measure, elites tried geoengineering, sprinkling particles into the atmosphere to reduce the warming power of the sun. That was a disaster, and somehow people woke up, staged a revolution, and embraced the half-Earth agenda. If you're not going to lay out a plan for organizing that revolution, the next best thing to do from a literary perspective is just to write as if it happened. The traveler from the present who wakes up in the future finds himself in western Massachusetts, living communally and doing lots of farm work. I have to say this life sounds more dystopian than utopian, but maybe that's just me. The intellectual pedigree of the book is not without problems, but I wouldn't go so far as Lord Acton, who said that few discoveries are more irritating than those which expose the pedigree of ideas. The half-earth idea comes from E.O. Wilson, who has earned considerable infamy on the left, perhaps unfairly, for his belief in sociobiology. About that, the authors say, Wilson is a bogeyman for the left because of his book Sociobiology, which naturalized sexual and cultural differences. Apart from this admittedly reactionary research program, Wilson is a center-left Democrat who thinks policy nudges and the generosity of enlightened philanthropists suffice to achieve planetary conservation. Okay, that's a plausible defense. More troublesome is the role of Dave Foreman, the co-founder of Earth First, who died on September 19th, in the intellectual history of rewilding. He was one of its earliest promoters. Foreman was a reactionary misanthropist who wanted to restrict immigration. Battese and Pendergrass vigorously reject that side of rewilding in the book. Since Foreman died after the interview was recorded, I asked them to comment on his legacy. They wrote, Instead of seeing overpopulation as the problem, environmentalists should see that capitalism has caused the environmental crisis, and therefore only socialism can promise true sustainability. Yet, for this to happen, socialists must, too, learn to take the environmental crisis seriously and propose a form of conservation that abjures its colonial heritage. They swear their vision could support the current human population of 8 billion, but they don't really say how. Though I'm glad they're not Malthusians, I wish they'd spent more time discussing population issues. Several times in the interview, when I criticize them for not having considered an issue adequately, they defend themselves by saying it's a short book. It is, but maybe it should have been longer. I'll have more to say after the interview. But now I'll let them make their case. Troy Vitesi is an environmental historian and a Max Weber Fellow at the European University Institute in Florence. Drew Pendergrass is a PhD student in environmental engineering at Harvard, where they met, and much of the book was written. Vitesi speaks first, defending himself by pleading former residents in Williamsburg, Brooklyn. I uh, am approaching you as a representative of what you call a, a demimond of Brooklyn socialists. <laughs> I'm sure you meant that affectionately, but uh, I guess you um, have some uh, problems with us here in, in the Brooklyn demimond.
1: I used to live in Williamsburg, so I have nothing, nothing against <laughs> okay. Brooklyn. Yeah,
0: I guess it takes one to know one. Anyway, um, let's start by laying out your vision. Like, just give us, you know, the elevator pitch for the Half Earth.
1: Sure, you want to take it, or?
2: What do you sure. Think? So. Our book, uh, which is quite a short book, Half Socialism, kind of makes an argument at two levels. The first argument is an argument in favor of this concept of scientific utopias, which is a concept from Otto Neurath, who is an Austrian a Vienna socialist and, and thinker from the early 20th century. Uh, he was involved in the German Revolution in the short-lived Bavarian Soviet Republic. And he was talking about economic democracy, making planning work in practice. And to Neurath Economic democracy is more than just like uh, we socialize the workplace. Now the workers get to control how they run the factory. It's a a whole society-wide problem. In particular, we need to decide where as a society we're going, where economically what we're going to do. And this requires thinking at this broader level. So we might, for example, have a, a Vienna full of cars or a Vienna with a lot of public transit or something in the middle, but we have to actually think about that at a broad scale so Neurat has this idea of scientific utopias or blueprints for the future, where we would envision multiple possibilities and debate amongst them and use that as a way to plan the economy democratically. And we take this concept and use it to talk about the environmental crisis, because there's many different ideas about how to handle the environmental crisis, many different ideas on the left, many arguments about things like nuclear energy, about degrowth, things that we'll get into, I'm sure, things about food system, energy systems, that all involve trade-offs. The best way we think to think about these is in terms of these these blueprints, these overall trade-offs. And the second argument of the book is our particular Scientific utopia that we put forward in spirit of debate, which involves reductions in energy use, vast reductions in the amount of meat consumed, all these things to free up land so that we can avert the ongoing mass extinction, transition rapidly to renewables and avert the worst of the climate crisis. And so on. And so this is our main argument. And uh, we made a video game so that people can disagree with us and try different things like a lot of nuclear or more meat and see what happens. And the video game has a climate model baked in so that people can see for themselves their own blueprints for the future and, and argue with us and think on this broader level.
0: Of course, it is your model. It's not. Uh, I mean, That's true. Mod- it, it embodies all your assumptions.
1: Well, well, well we the climate model, there. yeah. If climate model isn't, I mean, which model? You mean, the model in the book that, or the or the climate model in the game? The game. No, no. I mean, yes. that, Yeah, you go,
0: Drew.
2: Yeah, so you're you're right that certainly we made the game, but we tried to be very fair. Uh, our numbers come from scientific literature, so in terms of like the the efficiency of these renewables, you can actually win the game with a with a nuclear and um, sort of an eco modern strategy. You can do quite well with that in the game. There, we've had multiple players write to us and say that. So we try to be fair. I want to
0: hear more about that. That's encouraging. Um, okay. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to Troy. concede too much to you, Doug. Okay. Troy, you had something you had wanted to add to that?
1: Drew, Drew can speak to this better than I can, but the, the game has a climate model that is this Hector model that was developed by, was
2: it the U.S. government? Is it by NOAA? Or, Pacific uh, Northwest National Laboratory. Yeah,
1: yeah. So we didn't make that model. That that model's in the game. And then, yeah, we get the equations from, we have a fact checker, you know, we have lots of literature to back things up. Some things are definitely... Estimates and you know guesswork, but uh, there's no one path that's stronger. It's not like necessarily our our path is guaranteed to win, and we didn't do much playtesting to actually really see that in, in effect. So it's not like the game's rigged in that way.
0: Before we get into the the substance of the Utopia, before that even, I just want to applaud your um, revival of planning. It's really nice to see people speaking in favor of large-scale planning uh, when it's become so out of fashion. So I appreciate that part of your work very much. Um, but you open the book with three epigraphs about utopia, and then you launch into uh, laying out a miserable dystopia, a massively destructive hurricane. Leaving aside the fact that your utopia might not be everyone's cup of tea, why do you follow this frequent environmentalist approach of purely sketching out the worst-case scenario? Do you think these are motivational?
1: I think our approach is different from most environmental books in that, and same with the game, in that our book deals with not just environmental problems, but also economic problems. Uh, in our dystopia, we don't talk just about climate, right? We talk about the environmental crisis as a whole. So there's also like zoonotic disease. There's incredible inequality, having the world's first trillionaire, you know, emerging and all that. But, uh, so it's a broader, than just climate. And same with the game. Like, we have ecofeminism. We have Malthusianism. We have all this other political stuff that you don't see with the mainstream environmentalists. But what we wanted to do is, you know, what we are proposing may seem extreme to many people who are not vegan Marxists, right? I mean, like, obviously not everyone wants to give up meat or embrace economic planning. So we're trying to say that, you know, what we're proposing is, is very different, but it, it will sound more appealing if it is compared to what's likely going to happen in our society, in this liberal, democratic, uh, capitalist society. And I think we don't make any big leaps in terms of exaggerating the threat that we're facing over the next 25 years. I mean, I think, uh, and actually we're quite, we're quite kind to mainstream environmentalists, where we're assuming they take power and are able to achieve certain goals, such as you know electric vehicle implementation or energy efficiency and all that, but it won't be enough to actually avert the crisis. That, that's the point of, of our dystopia.
2: One thing that we do that's a little different is we try and limit the dystopia to only a few pages and then spend the rest of the book thinking about ways to avert this, uh, thinking in these broader solutions, transformations. One thing that we try and center in the beginning of the book is this uh, idea of geoengineering, solar geoengineering, which is sort of on the horizon. I'm a researcher at Harvard, and Harvard is where this plan is being currently built to fly planes up to the stratosphere, spray sulfur particles or some other particle to dim the sun as a permanent volcanic eruption, cooling the earth. This is currently being taught at the Harvard Kennedy School where our ruling class is made as basically a way to handle the overshoot of 1.5 degrees in climate reports. So we won't make this trajectory. Uh, People have kind of given up on it. So we might overshoot and then we'll use these planes to cool the planet. And this is really being discussed. It's talked about in uh, Biden administration. I mean, it's, it's this sort of prospect is on the horizon. And, and we make this uh, gambit in the book that we either have to plan nature through geoengineering to make the world safe for markets in our current economy, or we have to plan the economy so that we don't have to do these dramatic interventions into climate. It's sort of one or the other.
0: Now, I have to say, I'm a card-carrying eco-modernist, but um, sprinkling sulfur into the air sounds like an insane and risky scheme. Uh, but now, how, how seriously is this taken by whom?
2: Yeah, so there are some papers that are about this concept in the Biden administration. I I can tell you right now that in the climate classes at the Harvard Kennedy School, it is taught as a reasonable way to have time to deploy carbon dioxide removal technologies at scale. I don't know for sure how this will happen, but I think the cards are lining up for, for geoengineering to be in the future. Troy, you, you might have more to say about this.
1: You were recently saying you were at the American Geophysical Union or whatever, and they were actually endorsing research in this. And one could also add that there was a, a congressman from California who lined up funding, federal funding of, I think, $4 billion. It's is the first time the government is actually funding research on this. There's been multiple attempts by poor countries in various uh, international forums to prevent research and geoengineering experiments from taking place, and they've been blocked repeatedly by countries like Saudi Arabia or the U.S. And I, I would predict that it's going to happen before 2030. We're getting very close to geoengineering happening simply because we're not reducing emissions and climate change is definitely here and there's really no other way to go about it. And this is exactly what neoliberals really wanted to do, right? They've been interested in this for close to 20 years. Even at the same time, they were denying climate change because they wanted to delay action on climate until it became too late. And then the only thing you can do is rely on these scientists, entrepreneurs, and philanthropists like Bill Gates to make the world safe for capitalism through through geoengineering.
0: Another thing, I'm glad you revived planning, but also I'm glad to see people talking about utopia. But I think an old classic uh, Marxist critique of the utopian socialist tradition is that there's no credible path to get there. It doesn't build on the present and In your text, you actually say at one point, how such a half-earth socialist coalition might come to power, we cannot say. I mean, this is a very, very serious problem. You have what you see as a utopia in which about 40% of currently inhabited land has to be um, evacuated and rewilded, uh, in which people are more or less forced to be vegans, more or less forced to do farm work, mass population transfers. How do you imagine a popular movement emerging around those sorts of demands, which seem very unattractive to, I would think, almost anyone?
1: I mean, I would disagree. I mean, I would say, you you tell people, what is the world going to look like without these massive changes? We're going to have zoonotic diseases all the time. I mean, avian flu is just a ticking time bomb and it has a mortality rate many times higher than COVID. Geoengineering is almost certainly going to happen. And, And then the mass extinction event is going to happen as well if we continue eating meat and so forth there's going to be a trade-off somewhere. What we're saying with our book is that I think people can criticize us, but they have to acknowledge what their trade-offs are going to be. And I think a lot of socialists don't want to say that. They want to say, oh, no, we want to have everyone to live like billionaires, but we also want to protect the ecosystem. You can't do both. As in, we want to have a real debate about these trade-offs. So that's one thing. And the other thing would be, this is just one short book. We are not under any delusions that this one book is going to change the world. But the point what we're trying to say is that we need to start thinking seriously about the problems that have been undermining the environmental and the left and the socialist movement for the last 30 years where we've not achieved really anything of substance. And we have to rethink our ideology and understand you know, where our ideas have gone wrong. So things such as uh, having this like, builder for both, like this like, uh, inability to imagine socialism has not done the left any favors. I mean, I would also say that you know, environmentalists being totally co-opted by neoliberals has not done the environmental movement any favors. And we need to rethink these things. That's why we engage with this Promethean tendency in Marxism and say how can we make Marxism actually useful for an environmental crisis? This is all what we're doing. But also, I studied neoliberalism as part of my work as a historian. And what did the neoliberals do? They had to revise liberalism during the 1930s because laissez-faire did not work and it was not appealing after the Great Depression. And they had to come up with new concepts to come up with a new philosophy. And then once they figured that out, they then organized and translated their philosophy into policy and got their ideas out there. Uh, And they were modeling themselves on the Fabian Society. (laughs) I think it's useful for the left and for environmentalists to think clearly about what they want and how their policies would change the world, and from that point you can start to organize uh, short, medium, and long-term objectives. Instead, I mean, what are we, what are we doing?
0: The Pelerin gang were, um, in many ways, admirable in their in their skills, but they were also uh, ruthlessly anti-democratic and uh, very well financed. Your party has none of those things, so that's a big difference between you and the Montpellerin. I'll just
2: quibble a little bit about the the half-earth idea, right? The half-earth idea we take and critique very strongly from environmentalists and from from E.O. Wilson, this idea that land use change is the primary driver of mass extinction. We should care about mass extinction, not just in itself, but also because it undergirds the possibility of feeding people pollinator collapse is a major crisis. We think that we should take this seriously. And that requires giving up this major cause of uh, land use, right, which is this highly inefficient practice of meat. Uh, 80% of farmland is for meat production, which provides 20% of the calories. Uh, it's highly inefficient. A lot of our soy and corn goes to feeding animals rather than to feeding people, the majority of of soy. And we also don't think like this uh, this environmentalist idea of like purely non-human nature is is reasonable like we critique this quite strongly the land back movement right this could be conceived as part of this this withdrawal of domination that sort of thing to to allow um non-human species to flourish yeah on the um i should have written down some of the things i wanted to say (laughs) Um, (laughs) um yeah on the point of strategy this is an important thing that our book does not get into because our book, which is very short, is designed to kind of put forward this idea of scientific utopias as a way of debating. Because one thing that's frustrating is this idea that these climate solutions are out there, but there's this profit motive that prevents us from using these to, to solve the problems, which kind of just is like, well, if we abolish capitalism, then the climate crisis is solved. And I don't think it's that easy. Transforming the energy system, transforming the food system, all these things are very, very hard. It will be hard for a socialist society too, and it will involve trade-offs and challenges. It's not trivial. I don't think we can dismiss it. I think we have to take it seriously. And that's why we want to have this more rigorous debate. And rather than just hand wave, Things a little bit, and on the strategic point of how to get there, this is a very fair critique that is made of some of these utopian proposals of environmentalism in general, which has had trouble. And I think this is a point that we need to talk about more. We we still are kind of in this debate from the New Left days about the inability of the left to expand into the working class and sort of stuck in the, you know, as the Aaron Rex put it, you know, the PMC, as as Huber puts it as well. How do we get that and build a mass movement? I think is an unsolved question for for anyone including environmentalists?
1: I would say, I guess you can learn from neoliberals. I mean, again, obviously, there's differences between us and them, but we have some advantages that they don't have. Obviously, there's way fewer of them than there are of the left. And the other thing is that neoliberalism is creating a real troubled society. And they are facing more and more problems, right? They're unable to achieve high growth rates. They're unable to you know, get the economy going. I mean, they're reliant on bubbles. They have to make compromises with fascists. I mean, they're not, they're not in a good position either. But I think we can still learn from them in terms of it's useful to have policies because people are going to ask, why should we trust socialists if you don't tell us what socialism is? I mean, you have to lay out some ideas for people.
0: I agree there's a lot to be learned from them, um, and uh, they, they, they transformed the world with great skill, but also were, they also had uh, the capitalist class on their side, which uh, makes it a lot easier to accomplish those sorts of transformations. But I, let's talk um, a bit about some specifics. Um, veganism is a very important part of your program. It's also a very niche taste. Uh, and I saw one poll from Fauna Analytics, I believe you pronounce it, uh, which is a vegan advocacy organization to make their bias clear. Only half a percent of the US population is vegan, 2% is vegetarian, 84% of those who try it don't stick with it. Over half don't last a year, um, about a third only last three months. So, how are you going to build a popular movement in the light of those extremely hostile um, preferences?
1: I think it's strange, and people find veganism so difficult when we also are talking about the need to get rid of fossil fuels entirely. I mean, getting rid of fossil fuels is a far harder problem than changing our food system. We can change the food system very quickly within a year or two. And then uh, we would pretty much get rid of 20% of, of all emissions. And we also would free up 4 billion hectares of land for many other things. There's no other part of the economy that is so consequential ecologically, but so unimportant uh, economically, right? It's only a few percent of GDP and, and so forth. So I, it, to, there's no other like, low-hanging fruit like veganism. In terms of actually getting a mass movement, you, you were saying these statistics, hey, around 10% of people are former vegans and former vegetarians. So the actual number of people who are familiar with it is about, you know, maybe one in six or
0: something like that. Most of the familiar ones rejected it.
1: I don't know about rejection is the right word. It's hard to live in a society that constantly criticizes your point of view and, and mocks you and makes your life difficult. I mean, this, we would say that, like, the same amount of numbers would apply for socialism as well, probably. I mean, it's, uh, it's not easy being socialist either in a capitalist society. But the point is, uh, what we're arguing is if you actually had the animal rights movement with an with a, uh, environmentalist movement with the left who are all pushing and seeing the need for veganism in different ways and suddenly it's a much broader coalition. The point is about trade-offs. If you tell people, you know, do you want to live with geoengineering? Do you want to live with uh, more zoonotic diseases? Or do you want to live with, you know, some soy nuggets instead of chicken nuggets? I mean, is it really so unappealing? And the thing is, we haven't tried. I mean, we need to politicize these things much more and, and see what happens and to build up that conversation. Uh, I, I think there's nothing wrong with, with trying and, and, and also uh, linking, making these links between these different movements that we're not seeing right now.
0: now. You said a 2016 paper by Christian Peters and some collaborators on land use and diet uh, to promote veganism. But you don't quote their conclusion that the carrying capacity of the vegan diet, and this is a direct quote from the paper, was lower than – two of the healthy omnivore diet scenarios, which is interesting that the vegan diet actually has a worst performance and carrying capacity. But you know, also, if you look at more mainstream sources, the IPCC doesn't call for an end to meat eating. It calls for improved cropland, livestock, grazing, land management. I'm wondering how much your passion for veganism is driven more by ethics and by science.
2: So I think I want to start with the IPCC. It's important to distinguish the IPCC summary for policymakers from the scientific content of the IPCC reports. The summary for policymakers has the diplomats come through and cross things out. The IPCC working group three report is much more pro transitions to much more plant based eating. You're right that the IPCC does not push for veganism, though. It's important to just note of the order of magnitude less land use and emissions for plant based proteins rather than animal-based proteins. It's just a matter of efficiency. Of uh, If you feed soybeans to an animal, the animal is running around doing activity, and only some of that becomes meat, right? It's an inefficient process, whereas eating the product directly is always going to be orders of magnitude more efficient. And this shows up in all the numbers for land use. Now, some of these numbers and how they're calculated in different papers are different, right? There's still disagreement in the science, but there's a pretty strong consensus that the more plant-based diets consume much less land and lead to less emissions because of this land use change component. Uh, There are studies like the Eat Lancet study that don't push for a fully vegan world, but push for a world where you have several orders of magnitude less meat consumption per person. And this will lead to better health outcomes and better climate outcomes and better ecosphere outcomes. So we can quibble about this, but I think there's a pretty clear consensus that cutting down the amount of meat that we consume in, the wealthy part of the world, right, in, in the US, is necessary. You are right to call us out for being ethical vegans, though. That is true. We do think we do care about animal suffering. But I think that it's pretty grounded in in science the the need to to cut down on this dramatically. And we can argue about how dramatic, but dramatic I think is, is pretty
0: clear. That was the voice of Drew Pendergrass, co author along with Troy Vitese, who we're also hearing from, of Half Earth Socialism, published by Verso. You're listening to Behind the News on Jacobin Radio. My name is Doug Henwood, back after a musical break. He's Some of Exposure, third edition by Robert Fripp, from 1979. Terry Roach is the vocalist who screams exposure, and the voice declaring the necessity of suffering is John G. Bennett, a British author and spiritualist who is a follower of G.I. Gurjeff. And now the second part of my interview with Troy Vettese and Drew Pendergrass, co-authors of Half-Earth Socialism, published by Verso. Energy. You cite some work on energy requirements uh, by uh, Joel Milward Hopkins and his colleagues. I read one paper. They they work out how a fairly high level of material comfort could be supported by low energy requirement, hot water refrigerators, smartphones, transportation computers, which is basically a tale of abundance uh, despite uh, lower energy consumption. Your tale is more one of austere living and forced farm labor. <laughs> I read an article in the 2000 Watt Society from the UN University, and it sounded compatible. I mean, they're working out an experiment in Basel now, uh, compatible with a contemporary Swiss lifestyle. So maybe the 2000 Watt life does not have to be as
1: um... we're not painting it like a return to dwelling in caves or something like that. I mean, but also the 2,000 watt society, you know, standard of living is still only a third the amount of energy used compared to like the average Swiss person, right? They use around 6,000 watts, and only two percent of all Swiss people actually live according to a, a 2,000 watt you know standard of living. So you know, it's it's not impossible. Like our point is, like this is not, uh, you know, yeah, not uh, some. An- Anarcho-primitivists—we have to become hunter-gatherers or something like that. But it's like we need to severely curtail energy use. And for the average European, two thousand watts does not seem so far away. If you use like five or six thousand, but for an American, that will entail a pretty big decline, right? If you shave off ten thousand watts from your consumption, that means you can't have a very large house. You can't drive and commute—you know, two hours a day—or you can't eat hundred kilograms of meat a year. I mean, these are pretty important changes. Like our, again, our point's not not like this life would be a, such a grim world where people are just eating gruel every day. I mean, it still is a rewarding life, but we should not pretend that it would not require major changes, especially in the United States.
2: Troy and I disagree on how to frame some of these things. I think framing it as, right, as you were saying, Doug, that this is not a sacrifice. It's just a different way of living. Troy likes being upfront about the dramaticness of the changes, like in the US, right? Like our our suburbanization, this this car mode, these large houses, all these things have to go, right? It doesn't mean that life isn't Good, right? It just means that life is different. Uh, I think it will be for the best, but that's a question of values. Um, I think being upfront about the transformation required, and this is in any of the IPCC reports about uh, energy use declines, right? Like, and this is in the Working Group Three report of the most recent report. Like, this is this is real. Like, this transformation is necessary. I think it can be a good. One, I think it can be framed as a good thing, but I think it has to also be framed as real. And I think sometimes people shy away from framing it as as a substantial transformation of our way of life.
1: Yeah, I mean, again, you have to totally remake cities to have like public transportation. You have to have a building code that only allows passive housing. I mean, you have to do lots of things, right? And this is, I think, the main difference with our work compared to like degrowth proponents is that we're trying to be clear about what you know what needs to be shrunk or what needs to change, instead of leaving it fairly vague. And you know, if you're on board with two thousand watts, great, you know, that's that's wonderful. But let's let's actually put some numbers to our scientific utopias
0: the kind of evolution that some people are talking about is pretty recognizable to a Western lifestyle. Whereas you're proposing you know, the evacuation of something like 40% of inhabited land and uh, rewilding half the planet. That's far more extreme than I think what do you, do
1: you, are you going to miss all these pasture lands? Do you visit these 4 billion hectares of pasture? I mean, I think pe- people people really care about land use in cities, right? But cities are like 1% of all land use in the world, right? I mean, like, like the amount of pasture land we use is just like, mind-boggling. And half of that, or you know, whatever the number is, like 40% used to be a forest in relatively recently, right? And we can't have, again, we can't have both biodiversity and a large meat industry, right? And your previous point about you know us saying, people will have to do some agricultural labor. Why, I guess the question is like, how do we have an energy system, sorry, an agricultural system that only employs like two or 3% of the population? It's extremely mechanized. They have to rely on pesticides and fertilizer at a large scale to achieve that efficiency in terms of labor. And if you want to decarbonize that, that system, It's going to come at some cost. I mean, the fact that uh, I'd say in Cuba in the 1990s, they went without petroleum for, you know, 10 years or so. They realized that they had to engage in more urban farming and whatnot. Like everyone had to do a few hours a day uh, at an urban farm. I don't think that's like a huge burden, but there's a real cost to getting rid of, you know, a petroleum based agricultural system.
0: Well, that special period in Cuba was deeply unpopular, and <laughs> people were very glad when it was over.
2: Right, we are not, we're not saying that we want to reproduce the special period in Cuba, but we are saying that it is it is a useful to look at what happened when petroleum was immediately removed from an economy. How did that transform the food system? So, for example, if we rely on large amounts of highly rationalized commodity foods like corn and soy, the way we handle that in our food system is that we feed it to animals to transform it into meat highly inefficiently, but it doesn't matter because we can grow these things at great scales, right? With this massive amount of land that we have transformed very recently from ecosystem to pasture land. And if we go to a more diverse set of plant foods, these foods that also can sequester nitrogen into the soil so that you have to lose yes, less fertilizer anyway. If you submit change to that, that does require more labor. I think there's something like Thirty percent more labor. We talk about so it's not a full re ruralization that you're talking about. It's, it's just more labor in the food system and and in, in the fictional part of our book we do focus on an agricultural area to demonstrate this, but that is not what the world is. To clarify, and also this idea of like evacuating forty percent of land, as you as you put it, that's not what we're advocating. Four, we're not saying that humans and nature are just these polar opposites that can't coexist. But we are saying that this very recent transformation of land to pasture and animal feed to fit into this rationalized for capital system, that needs to be undone. Like That just needs to be undone to preserve our ecosystem. So that's what we're talking about transforming. It's not like we're going to like uh, Omaha and saying, you got to get out of Omaha or something. That is not what we're proposing. We want to center how large the transformation is, but we don't want to make it sound like it's as bad as as you're making it sound.
0: In your 2047 chapter, you say that Boston's population has been thinned out and uh, the Happy Valley of Western Massachusetts is going to be uh, essentially evacuated. These kinds of vast population transfers are generally associated with war or deeply authoritarian governments. We're all supposed to do this democratically? You're a Marxist.
1: So how do you think Marxists understand the reconciliation of town and country? Oh well that's um,
0: not been fully worked out, I don't think.
1: Yeah, but I mean I said we have cities. Cities exist. I mean you follow like Andreas Mom's work because it helped you know, you can concentrate this industrial reserve army in cities next to fossil fuels and uh, people have been pushed into them. I mean, what's going to happen in a socialist society? You don't think that there would be some movement back to to the countryside? And again, we saw this with with Cuba in the 1990s as well. I mean, people did go back to the countryside in significant numbers to, to farm. The socialist vision that you're trying to sketch out, is it something like high rates of consumption, people are living in cities and people are using large amounts of energy? I mean, there's like, well, what environmental costs are you willing to pay for that vision, right? Are you happy to have another pandemic like every ten years? Are you happy to have just total collapse of the biosphere? I mean, are you happy to have geoengineering? What are what what how are you gonna pay for these things?
0: There are plausible uh, scenarios. I mean, the IPCC is, uh, has scenarios that uh, don't involve like a whole, a whole kinds of transformations you're talking about. One of the issues I have with the, the style of your book is um, you don't really take on um, mainstream positions very fairly. Uh, so you, for example, dismiss controversial issues like carbon capture or nuclear power in just a couple of pages with footnotes. We, we dedicate just- a significant section to sure. nuclear power. I totally okay. disagree with that. I wrote a book about uh, 20 years ago on on finance, on Wall Street, and I thought it was important to take on the proponents of orthodox finance very directly and lay out their arguments at some length and refute them at some length. You often seem to make very sweeping pronouncements on the basis of a few references over the course of a few pages uh, and uh, don't really we did a lot of work for this book. I mean, there's a lot
1: of end notes in this book. I, I, I think this is completely unfair how you're trying to portray our arguments. How are we unfair to nuclear? And also, I mean, just look at the work of Baclav Smil. He does not take carbon capture and sequestration seriously Yeah, you need a huge amount of infrastructure to sequester like 10 percent of emissions a year i mean it's a, it's a total waste of time i mean the cost of it is, is ridiculous i mean rewilding is you know if you want to quote these ipcc reports is by far the cheapest and easiest way to sequester carbon at a large scale but again we're, we're not unfair to nuclear at all if you have 4,000 nuclear reactors or whatever number these eco-modernists want to make, you're going to run out of easily accessible uranium ore very quickly. Like, how do you imagine that's going to be carbon neutral?
0: I said you don't really – like. for example, you don't say this is what the IPCC says about some specific issue. And you don't say this is why this is wrong. And you just dismiss a lot of this stuff as neoliberal propaganda or apologetics. And I, I, think you really, I don't think you really engage fervently enough with uh, the mainstream.
2: One thing to say is that our book is, is quite short. Our book is trying to be a quick gloss of many, many things. And I think you're right that we could have spent more time on some of these issues. We try to capture important trends, like for example, bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration. The way that the integrated assessment models used by the IPCC to model the future of emissions for the 1.5 degrees Celsius scenario and especially right is that we have this economy that works and then we try and suck out carbon from the atmosphere how much land would that require for this bioenergy with carbon capture and sequestration which i will say is the main form of carbon dioxide removal in these models right artificial removal of carbon from the air and the idea is you grow these massive tree plantations you cut down the trees you burn them for energy and capture the carbon emitted your burning, you concentrate that and then bury it underground into probably former fossil fuel underground reserves, like some of these underground reservoirs, right? That's the idea. The amount of land that this requires for the 1.5 degree plans, right, is massive, depending on how fast you decarbonize. But on the path we're on, it's something like four times the amount of land as India of these tree plantations required to get to that scenario, which means that we just won't have that climate scenario. We try to lay this out in some basic detail, but I think there's a lot more to say. You're, you're, you're totally right. I think. But I think it's, it's just worth talking about the scale of the challenge of removing carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. It's, it's this diffuse molecule it requires lots of energy to concentrate and lots of infrastructure to bury underground that I think is very hard to deploy at scale without massive emissions reductions.
1: You're saying we dismiss things no glibly. Again, this is a thoroughly researched book, and I I work on neoliberalism. That's why that's what I I do as a scholar. I do not simply just dismiss things as neoliberal. I mean, like we we definitely have to either connect things, or, or could you point out a citation? Like I don't know what you're referring to, but it's simply because you disagree with our proposals does not mean that we did not research it or defend it enough. And I also want to say that it's a bit strange for a Marxist to say, oh, you're not mainstream enough in your arguments. I mean, like that doesn't make any
0: sense. That's not what I said. I said, you don't engage enough with. Because as I said, when I was writing about Wall Street, I thought it was very important to engage with, at, at some length, with um, you know, the leading bourgeois economists in the field. And uh, I spent scores of pages doing that. When you're doing something like this, you really have to take the mainstream seriously. I mean, you know, the IPCC is like, there are a lot of uh, very distinguished scientists involved in that effort. And I don't see that much engagement with what they have to say. It's um, much more um, a bunch of assertions followed by um, your... Um, a
1: bunch of assertions...
0: This is ridiculous. I mean, again,
1: you're, you're, you're happy to, uh, to disagree, but we justify what we say and we do quote IPCC reports and we give me an example of what, I mean, I saying, we're pushing veganism too hard and the IPCC does it. I mean, that's, I think that's not an argument against, against veganism.
0: On the carbon capture, just this morning, I got a a report from PitchBook, which uh, follows venture capitalists. And uh, their venture capitalist world is very excited about the possibilities of carbon capture. And uh, they're listed a bunch of very young technologies that need investment. So, you know, we haven't seen the last word on carbon capture
1: people have been talking about carbon capture for 20 years and how many carbon capture plants do we actually have? I mean, it's not going to be scaled up at at the rate that that you want it to. I mean, it's, you know, look at direct air capture. Okay. What uh, David Keith is up to, like how much is it? Is it $600 a ton? I mean, this is like totally economically
0: infeasible. What do you think it's going to stay that way forever? I mean, the electric light was very expensive when it was first invented, you know, William Nordhaus wrote a famous paper on that.
2: On the carbon capture point, you're right that there's a lot to deploy, right? Like direct air capture is a young technology. We can deploy it a lot more but I want to point out some basic problems that are very hard to overcome, which is carbon dioxide is a very diffuse molecule, right? There's over a little bit over 400 parts per million in the atmosphere. It is to concentrate that out of the atmosphere and then get it into a pipeline and bury it underground requires a lot of energy. So these direct air capture plants require a lot of energy to remove comparatively little energy. So the existing direct air capture uh, the DAX plant in Iceland, this is one of the main demo models, removes about the same amount of carbon as a few hundred cars, and it has a large energy input. And right, if we're switching to renewables, then this, keeping these energy inputs up to sequester this carbon is very challenging. Now, this technology will improve. You're totally right. but. It will require a lot of energy, which is why in the IPCC models, bioenergy with carbon capture and storage ends up being part of what is used because you can use the trees to collect the carbon and, and then you you burn those and then you capture the more concentrated carbon from the pipe. You capture the carbon emissions from burning the trees and then you bury that. It's a more concentrated form. It requires less energy to concentrate and bury. That's sort of like the physical landscape that we're working with here. I think if we can get carbon dioxide removal built up, we should put efforts on it. But I think that just saying that, for example, like after the revolution, we'll get rid of profits, or after we get rid of capitalism, profits won't matter, and therefore we can do whatever we want. I mean, it's true that we will be freer to do many things and try many things. But just because we have gotten rid of this profit move does not mean, make it any easier to deploy these things at scale. And I'm I'm skeptical it can be used to remove more than a small percentage of what our current emissions are, which means we need to get there. And maybe there can be some hard to remove emissions left over at the end. That'll probably be what happens. But you have to get there first, right? You can't you can't just rely on this as a, a dux machina, which I think it sometimes ends up being used for.
0: Well, there are a lot of deus ex machinas in your book. I mean, like, how do we get to 2047, for example? I mean, it's the the big one.
2: Yes. Yeah. Well, the important thing that I really want to emphasize about what our book is trying to do is our book is trying to think about the challenges that a socialist society would face if we're trying to take this problem seriously, or the challenges to get us to stop you know, dismissing the challenges of changing the environment by just saying that capitalism isn't doing it because it's not profitable. Capitalism isn't doing it because it's not profitable. Absolutely true. But even if we got rid of profits as a motive, it would require us to make broad changes to society in pursuit of that goal. So I think that's what we want to do. And that's why it's a short book. It's a short intervention, right? We're we're trying to do a few things with it right we're not trying to outline the full strategy that we should make i mean that's something that we're still thinking about and i i think about in my activism right like that pathway is is hard right and we use that as a as a maybe a narrative device in the book to think about these issues this um like if we you know planning for the best case scenario or planning for what would we do i think that's a useful conversation to have because it helps us direct what we do now if we're thinking about these these broader goals, right? These broader trade-offs that we'll have to think about.
1: Uh, I would also say that Hayek was not taken seriously in 1947, but look what happened there. Not to say that I don't th- I don't think we're going to be successful. I'm not an optimist when it comes to vegan Marxism. I think I, th- I think, neoliberals are going to kick our butt, and I think socialists are fairly useless, and unfortunately, and, and lose a lot of battles precisely because they won't actually engage with their own philosophy and come up with concrete solutions. And this is what we're trying to do. Like, let's at least start a, a debate, and then we can see where we want to go. The
0: road to serfdom was a bestseller.
1: Yes. But, in 19, I, mean, I mean, Hayek couldn't get a job in an economics department at uh, University of Chicago, even, right? I mean, he was not taken seriously. It was seen as, like, a real uh, shock when he won the Nobel Prize in economics, and because he was
0: not taken seriously as an economist. And things have changed a lot since 1947. You're talking about interesting thought experiments here, which is what the book is. But uh, it seems that we need a really interesting thought experiment of how to get there from here. I mean, we've got, uh, we can't pass Build Back Better, much less the Green New Deal, much less economic planning on a global scale, which is an engaging fantasy. But it's just, (laughs) how how do we even begin to get there? I mean,
1: I think people have it the wrong way around. They think that you have a coalition and then they have ideas. I think ideas can help actually make a coalition. Right. As in what we're trying to do with our book is say, okay, right now, animal rights, people don't like environmentalists who don't like socialists or who don't like feminists or whatever it is. And say, actually, there is there's a lot of common ground between these movements once they get rid of like the Malthusianism or the utilitarianism or the Prometheanism in their thought. And then suddenly you can start seeing a coalition. Emerging that can work towards goals. And again, utopia is useful because it gives you something to work towards. I think the saying like, oh, utopia or this book is too utopian. It's not, it's not, uh, it, you know, it's, 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 in, it's infeasible. I think that's a misunderstanding. I think how politics work, right? And I'm not saying that our book will be the book that does it, the book that ushers in socialism and, you know, finally ends neoliberalism or whatever it is. But I think when it does happen, it will be something in this vein.
0: Finally, we're just about out of time here. Troy, judging from Twitter, you hate people having pets and seem to enjoy the news that the philosopher Jules Deleuze hated pet owners, and you say, in case my vegan Marxist views made me too mainstream, I found a way to burn my bridges with everyone. Now, I get that's a joke, but it does seem to reflect a view of politics. Take a rigid and unpopular position and hope that badgering people will win the day.
1: I don't really care at some level. I mean, this is when me, Drew and I disagree. I mean, I, I, I like to come up with something that is coherent and, and makes sense to me. I mean, basically, I want to get involved in eco-socialist debates or understand neoliberalism and, and so forth, because I want to understand the world I was living in, why it was so messed up. And then I want to understand how would uh, a better society... And function? What would a society that actually overcame the environmental crisis actually look like? What would a society without markets actually look like? And think through these problems. I don't really care if people find these uh, ideas unpopular. I mean, as long as I think I've solved the problems for myself in a convincing way, and that does not that's not to say that I cannot be convinced otherwise, but I think a certain logical coherence is satisfying as an intellectual. Um, and then in terms of pets, I mean, that's a whole other debate, but I, I generally find it strange that... Pets cause, first of all, pets suffer a huge amount themselves because of pet ownership. I mean, they die a lot. Like 8 million pets are returned to shelters every year where half of them are killed just in the US and one can go on and on. They harm other animals. I mean, they cause extinctions in terms of like feral cats, you know, killing birds or whatever it is. And then I think it creates a very deformed relationship between humanity and nature where we think animals exist solely for our pleasure rather than for their own sake. So these are the reasons why I don't like pet ownership.
0: All right, um, I see my cat My cat sitting over the chair right there, and uh, he looks pretty happy. Those were Troy Vitese, the last voice you heard before mine, and Drew Pendergrass, authors of Half-Earth Socialism, published by Verso. And I'll exercise my host's privilege by getting the last word here. As was clear from my introduction, I have a lot of problems with the book. I'll list a few more. Their style of argument is rather biased. They caricature and dismiss things they don't like or agree with. Vattese said they had a whole section on nuclear power. It's all of four pages. They spurn dissenting positions as nonsense, even those coming from credible sources like the climate scientist James Hansen, who says that nuclear power has saved almost 2 million lives over the last five decades by reducing fossil fuel pollution, and also the journalist George Monbiot, a lot of my listeners don't like the pro-nuke position, but that's not my point here. Instead of responding to arguments such as these, Vitese and Pendergrass banish them, citing only sources that support their position as if they were conclusive. That approach no doubt pleases the crowd, but these are complex and controversial issues, and their approach is no way to advance the argument. But it's not just nuclear power. Geoengineering is far more controversial even among mainstream experts than their account allows. You can find serious reservations coming out of Harvard, which they portray as the strategy's Vatican, and also the Brookings Institution, an establishment source if there ever was one. An article published by Yale's Environmental Program opens by saying geoengineering has to be taken seriously, but then pivots to its dangers and suggests large-scale reforestation as a safer alternative. I'm not denying that geoengineering has its advocates, but there's nothing like the elite consensus the half-earthers describe. Or direct air carbon capture, an approach of sucking large amounts of carbon out of the atmosphere that's still in its infancy. When I pointed to lots of young technologies in the field, Vitezi responded by saying we've been talking about it for 20 years and it's still not feasible. Computers were hugely expensive and slow as molasses 20 years after they were first deployed, too. As I complained in the interview, they mostly consider mainstream approaches only to dismiss them, rather than engaging with them seriously. I say this not out of any love for mainstream sources, but because they're not always wrong, and in any case, deserving of serious refutation, given their power and resources. The IPCC, which is made up of some of the world's most distinguished environmental scientists, thinks other approaches would work, but Vitese and Pendergrass don't say much about why they're wrong. They don't even give a full picture of some of the research they draw on. I quoted the conclusion of a paper by Christian Peters et al., which they cite in the book in support of their fervent veganism. Quote, carrying capacity was generally higher for scenarios with less meat and highest for the lacto vegetarian diet. However, the carrying capacity of the vegan diet was lower than two of the healthy omnivore diet scenarios. Close quote. As you may have noticed, Pendergrass ignored this and answered a question of his own invention and then pivoted to cutting down the amount of meat, which is not veganism, but which sounds entirely sensible to me for many reasons. Vittese's dismissal of the unpopularity of veganism by saying socialism, too, would poll poorly is belied by actual polls. A Gallup poll from last year had its approval at 38%, an Axios Momentum poll, also from last year, had it at 41%. That's a lot different from the poll showing that only 2% of Americans don't eat meat, and 84% of vegans and vegetarians abandon their diet. Like it or not, this is a serious obstacle to their agenda. There's something coercive about their rhetorical strategy. If you don't like our utopia, the only alternative is doom. Other options are ruled out almost by executive order. I'll grant them this. The book is a conversation starter. But their vision is seriously lacking in political promise. Given the severity of the problem, we need to find some more appealing approaches. That's it for me, Doug Henwood. Let's go out with this in a note of Nature-Inspired Charm, some of Beethoven's Spring Sonata performed by Itzhak Perlman and Vladimir Ashkenazi. Till next week. Bye. Thank you.